You're now listening to episode 105 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here today with Nate Hare, Executive Vice President at Quest Trust Company, a company that administers self-directed IRAs, 401ks, and other retirement accounts that allow you to invest in alternative assets such as real estate. In today's episode, we discuss the various aspects of investing through self-directed retirement accounts, including the differences between a self-directed and regular retirement account, what you can invest in using a self-directed account, general questions we always get from clients, why the unrelated business income tax, also known as UBIT, is often a non-issue when making an investment decision, the strangest investments Nate has ever seen, and much more. Hey everyone, we want to let you know about a new podcast we're releasing today called The Staying Power Podcast. This is a podcast that will explore the challenges business owners face as they grow. Together, Brandon Hall and I ask the tough questions to show you that running a business is not for the faint at heart, but if you have the staying power, you'll overcome your challenges and achieve lasting success. Subscribe to the Staying Power Podcast today on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts can be found. We hope you'll love this new podcast just as much as the Real Estate CPA Podcast. However, for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Nate, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background? Yeah. Um, for people who aren't familiar, I'm, uh, my name is Nate Hare. I'm the executive vice president of a self-directed IRA company called Quest Trust Company. But just to keep it real short and brief, uh, I've had a lot of experience in real estate, both on the investor side and on the mortgage side. So I spent a lot of years in the mortgage industry as a lender. And that kind of transitioned me or prepared me to work with Quest Trust Company who deal with investors that do a lot of the same, buy real estate and lend, but they do it within retirement accounts. And, and that's kind of where my focus is today. Awesome. Awesome. So a lot of our listeners are already familiar with uh, self-directed retirement accounts, but just as a kind of a brief overview, would you be able to just tell us the difference between a rollover IRA with a traditional custodian like a Fidelity or Charles Schwab and a self-directed IRA? Sure. Well, a rollover IRA is not really a type of IRA. A lot of times people call their rollover IRA um, their IRA that was funded through a rollover from an old employer plan. So most commonly, people might have a 401k at a job that they worked at. They might leave that company and then that uh, retirement account rolls into an IRA. Now, depending on how that bucket of money is taxed, that money can roll into a traditional IRA or in some cases roll into a Roth IRA. Those two IRAs are just taxed differently, but that would be what you would call a rollover IRA. When you say traditional IRA, I think a lot of people think when they think traditional IRA, they just think uh, an IRA at Fidelity that holds traditional assets. And when you talk self-directed IRA, again, self-directed IRA is not a type of IRA. It's just a marketing term. So there's a lot of these marketing terms that get people confused if they're not familiar. But IRAs are IRAs or IRAs. If you have an IRA at Fidelity, that's the same IRA by rule as an IRA at Quest. The only thing that's different between Fidelity 
and Quest is the type of assets we administrate or we allow our clients to hold within them. So your fidelities hold traditional assets like stocks and bonds. Quest holds non-traditional assets like rental property, land, promissory notes, and investments into small, non-publicly traded companies. And what allows Quest to hold these non-traditional assets, whereas Fidelity, you know, you can only hold stocks and bonds? When you look at the IRS rules, the IRS doesn't prevent us from holding much in our IRA. There's only two assets that are not allowed in an IRA, and that would be life insurance contracts and collectibles. Now, when you ask why doesn't Fidelity hold non-traditional assets, it's mainly just because they don't make money selling non-traditional assets. Their money is made you know, by being a licensed securities broker and they sell stocks and bonds and that's pretty much what they allow you to hold because that's how they make their money. When it comes to Quest, our account agreement with our clients just says, we'll allow you to hold anything the IRS allows, but you have to find the investment. So what we try to stick to is we try to stick to all the assets that Fidelity won't allow you to hold And those would be things mainly that are tangible assets like a rental property vested in the name of your IRA. We have a lot of people that like to lend hard money loans out of their IRAs. It's actually what I do today. So the IRS rules allow any company who's an administrator to hold any asset they choose to. And Fidelity chooses to hold traditional assets and we just choose to hold non-traditional assets. But we could all do the same. It's just how we make our money. Got it. And so as a consumer, when I like if I have money in my IRA and I want to own non-traditional assets in my IRA, then I need to be looking for a provider that allows me to do that. One, I can't just go and strike out on my own and do it. I have to have it through some sort of plan administrator. And then it really just depends on what that plan administrator is ultimately going to allow you to invest in. Right. That's exactly right. So most of our clients truthfully have IRAs at Quest and they still have IRAs at Fidelity, which I think is the best way to do it because now it allows you to hold any asset you choose, whether it's traditional or non-traditional. And when you're searching for, I would say, self-directed IRA companies, since we're just a fee-service business, we're not selling investments, you just want to find one that understands the investments that you'd like to make and fit your investment strategy with the companies that understand it. So for example, you know, we're owned and operated by investors that invest in real estate. I invested in real estate and primarily as a lender before I even knew about Quest. So I understand how to merge both worlds, I would say. Our president and founder was a fee attorney for American Title Company for you know decades. He's also uh, an investor, our CEO. All of the executives are investors in real estate. So we, I think we uh, cater to people who want to invest in those types of things. But if you want to invest in like gold and silver, there's probably better companies to hold gold and silver that understand it better than us. And those would also be self-directed IRA companies. So. And you mentioned that you mentioned a few minutes ago that the self-directed term is really just a marketing term. So do I have it right that an IRA at Fidelity is the exact same IRA at Quest? It's just that Quest is saying we let you self-direct it. And that's just you're just trying to draw a line between Fidelity says you can only invest in these assets, whereas we say you can invest in these, but you have to go find it. That's the self-directed component. Is that what that is? That's basically right. So a lot of people get confused because um, I wouldn't say we let them self-direct it. 
we almost make them self-directed yeah. because <laughs> we don't have investments to sell. So when somebody moves their their IRA funds to Quest, it's going to sit there until they tell us what they'd like it invested in. And as us as the custodian, we sign the documents and hold it so that the investment gets all of its tax benefits. And then you have you know a bucket of money or assets to distribute, preferably at retirement. But some of the other traditional companies like Vanguards and Fidelities, they'll have a quote self-directed IRA, but it's you know self-directed into you know whatever stocks you want to purchase. So it just it gets loosely used in some cases, but we call it a self-directed IRA because we feel it's truly self-directed where our clients have to find their own investments. And we just act as the administrator and do a lot of education as to uh, give people kind of a foundation of what they might want to invest in, but ultimately they make the decision. What are the contribution limits for these IRAs? Well, contributions, it depends on the type of IRA you're talking about. There's really three categories of plans that we talk about at Quest. One would be your personal plans, and that would consist of your traditional IRA and your Roth IRA. Right now, contribution limits is you know what you take out of your pocket and add. That would be $6,000 for that category if you're under 50 and $7,000 if you're above the age of 50. Right now, it's kind of an interesting time. You can still make contributions for 2019. And since we're in 2020, you can make contributions for both years. And then when you get to the employer plans, those have the larger contributions. You can contribute. I won't get too in-depth with it, but you know, close to $60,000, depending on your income, to employer plans if you're self-employed. And then we have these specialty plans that we like to talk about, which would be your health savings account and your education savings accounts that you can set up for your kids. And those range, the education savings accounts, $2,000 per child per year you could contribute. And then the HSA, one of my favorite accounts, you can contribute $3,500 a year, all pre-tax to if you're just uh, the only person covered on your insurance. And if you're have a family plan, it's $7,000. Now, one thing I want to mention about contributions, though, is a lot of people get contributions confused with profit. Profit's unlimited. Contributions is just what you take out of your pocket and add to the account. But it's always good to understand how much you can shovel in there because any money you put in it in a retirement account is going to be sheltered away from Uncle Sam, you know, dipping his hands into it too much. So, and what are the great. contribution deadlines? Contribution deadlines are uh, for the personal plans and the specialty plans. They're, they're your tax filing deadline, which is usually April 15th. Now, obviously, this year is a little bit different, but normally April 15th is the contribution deadline for previous year. And then when you talk about the employer plans, that's going to be based on how your business is set up. And typically, your employer plans have a contribution deadline of either September 15th or October 15th, depending on the type of entity you have structured. Of the following year. Of the following year, correct. Of the following year. So, so talk to me about the employer plans. You just said that you can contribute a heck of a lot of money to it over regular plans. So how, how do I do that? So this is where you would want to talk to your CPA and find out you know, how much you can truly contribute to an employer plan because most of them are going to be based on uh, what you're reporting as far as income. Um, and you know, they're, they're going to look at your Schedule C, your 1099 income. And if you're looking at, say, the SEP IRA, the SEP IRA, you can contribute uh, about $57,000 a year, but it's a calculation off of your income. So if you're paying yourself a salary, it's 25% of your salary not to exceed the $57,000. And if you are not paying yourself a salary, you're just commission-based work or contract uh, 1099 payments, it's roughly about 19 or 20% of your income. So you got to work with your CPA on, on some of that. Uh, the simple IRA, 
the most complicated IRA out of all of them. It's kind of funny. It's studying this, these uh, IRAs, you find out that the name of the IRA is usually the opposite of how it works. Um, <laughs> but the simple IRA, the contributions are a little less, about $18,000. And the 401k, which is a really cool account for those who are self-employed, we have a solo 401k that you can contribute both Roth money and traditional money. And the contribution limits for that are, are right around $60,000, depending on, you know, again, how you're reporting your income. So larger contributions there. Well, what I think for any investor out there is you want to open as many IRAs as possible. I know that sounds a little biased because I work in the industry, but it truly is a wonderful tax savings that these IRAs give us because they're all tax-exempt trusts. Some of them grow tax-deferred, others grow completely tax-free. And in a lot of our education, we talk to people about looking at every single category and making sure you set yourself up with anything you qualify for. Because as you invest in these accounts, you pay way less in taxes than had you kept that money yourself and invested it as an individual taxpayer. Absolutely. And I know we're going to talk a lot more about IRAs in, in just a second, but is there any one of these accounts that you would say is better to in, use to invest in real estate with than others? I think it just really depends on the individual. I'll give you a real life example. So my stepmom is not a real estate investor. She is a saver though. She, she's retired now, but you know, she worked many years and had a lot of uh, you know, pretty high powered sales jobs. And for her, her retirement strategy was to shovel as much money out of her earnings into her accounts. And she didn't want to hit home runs. She didn't want to invest in non-traditional assets. She just wanted to make a slow, steady return. And for her, the tax deductions outweighed the growth for her retirement. So for her, the accounts you get tax deductions on the contributions were more advantageous. SEP IRA, traditional IRA, and HSA if you're looking for tax deductions. For me and some of the investors that we deal with, I want to put less money in out of my earnings, but have the investment grow more than just you know conservatively. And I think you can do that with some real estate assets, depending on what you're buying, because you know we all know real estate, you have different sources of income. You can have a rental property that appreciates and generates rents. I've seen clients of ours make 30% just on the rents annually. So if the growth outweighs what you get in the deduction, then I really like the Roth IRA, the HSA actually grows tax-free uh, as well. And the ESA, the education savings account, are all great accounts that you don't get a tax deduction when you put the money in, but the growth within the account is completely free of tax if you play your cards right before you start taking distributions. And one more that I'll add to that that's pretty powerful if you're looking at tax-free growth instead of just tax deduction is the solo 401k with the Roth component. That thing is awesome, but you got to be self-employed, but it does allow you to put large Roth contributions in there that you can invest in real estate and grow completely tax-free. Got it. Got it. And I know we'll probably touch on this a little later on um, with some UDFI questions, but uh, would you be able to clarify? You know, I, I understand that if you were to make rental property investments out of a solo 401k with debt, you're not subject to the UBIT that's generated by the UDFI. Uh, would you be able to just talk about that for you know briefly? Sure. Yeah. So um, UDFI stands for Unrelated Debt Financed Income. And where you see this most commonly is when an IRA makes an investment and that investment is taxable to the IRA. Now, I want to make a distinction. If you use your IRA and you buy a property all cash, there's no taxes whatsoever. The investment grows tax deferred or tax-free. 
But there are situations where you might just want to use a small portion of your IRA for a down payment and borrow money from a bank. You can actually do that. There's banks that have IRA loans, and most people aren't even familiar with these banks out there. But if your IRA borrows money for its investment, well, then you have to pay a tax based on the amount that it borrows. And that's called unrelated debt financed income. Now, what you mentioned is another cool component to the 401k that built into the 401k is an exemption to paying the UDFI. You just don't have to pay it if you're buying debt leveraged property within your 401k. So if that's your strategy and you're self-employed, the 401k becomes an even better tool for you to use where your IRA can borrow money, buy more assets. And if you manage it well, you know, own several rental properties completely tax-free at some point once the debt's paid off. Makes sense. Makes sense. And say we open up one of these accounts and I have a self-directed IRA. What is the process to go move forward with making an, an investment in real estate? So the, the process is pretty simple. Open an account first is the first step. And we have IRA specialists that are on staff at all times, you know, even during, you know, the lockdown, I'll probably have some information on how to contact them. And all it is is about filling out an application, deciding what types of accounts that you want to set up for yourself. Uh, That would be step one. Step two is once the account's open, then you fund the account. You can fund it three ways. You can either make a contribution, like you would make a contribution to any IRA. Uh, You could transfer money from another IRA. That's Usually the most common way that we move money into the self-directed IRA is just send a transfer request to Fidelity on however much you want to transfer. And that money's typically to Quest within three to five business days, depending on the company that's sending it to us. Some are a little bit longer, uh, but Fidelity and Charles Schwab typically run pretty fast. And the third way is rollover. So a lot of people who might be transitioning jobs, you know, leaving jobs, uh, or might be, fur- you know, furloughed or, or laid off at, at this point. Once you have separation of service from the company that you are working with, you can roll that money into an IRA. So you can roll it to Quest or you can roll it to Fidelity. That's really up to you. But step one, open the account. Step two, fund it. And then step three is the fun part, which is, you know, find an investment. And we've got an amazing transactions department that funds about 3,000 investments a month. Uh, 3,000 fundings a month at this point. And they've, you know, there's no real estate strategy or lender strategy that they haven't seen. So they're very good at walking the client through the process of how to take their money in their IRA and buy a piece of real estate or lend it to a a real estate investor or, or do any of the investments that we hold here at Quest. So it's pretty simple. And I would say for most people, once they do it, uh, go through the process on the first one might be a, a little bit different for them because it's not like pushing a button and buying a stock. But once they get through the transaction process the first time, it's just like riding a bike after that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know I've been through a self-directed IRA process before. It is relatively straightforward. And we understand that there's virtually no limits of what you can invest in with a self-directed IRA account. Are there any limits? Are like What are the limits that you know of? What is restricted? Yeah, the only things that are restricted as far as the investments go are life insurance contracts and collectibles. Anything else you can hold title to can be owned in the name of your IRA. So the IRA is an entity on its own. It's a trust by definition. It's got a name to it. It's got a legal definition to it. And anything that you can drop a contract to purchase or drop title to can be owned in the name of your IRA. One thing that goes outside of the investment restrictions, though, are there are some rules with prohibited transactions on who the IRA invests with. That's probably one thing that we talk a lot about that you'll never have to have a conversation with Fidelity about. 
because when you invest with a self-directed IRA and you're buying investments from people, there's certain people that your IRA is restricted from dealing with. So for example, I can't invest my IRA to myself because I'm the IRA owner. It's a conflict of interest for me to tell my IRA to buy my house or for me to sell my house to my IRA. And the other people that would be prohibited from investing with the IRA in that same fashion would be my spouse and typically the people that would inherit my IRA, which would be my kids, my grandkids, but it also goes up to parents and grandparents. So it's it's the people that are usually in that pathway of wealth that cannot invest with the IRA. But outside of that, if you're just buying rental properties from non-disqualified people, the sky's the limit at that point. On the topic of prohibited transactions, what if I lend $50,000 to my friend mm-hmm. and then he lends $50,000 to me, both from our self-directed IRAs? Yeah. If it was done for the purpose of trading money, it would probably be just as prohibited as if you did it to yourself. Now, we have a lot of clients that work in similar fields. So for instance, if you've got two real estate investors and they know they can't loan their own IRA money to themselves, well, let's say it's me and you. Let's say that you've got a you know pretty good flip that you want to buy and you'd like my IRA to fund it. You know, We can drop a promissory note. My IRA can be your lender. You make money as the real estate investor and I make money in my IRA as the, as the lender. And then later down the road, let's say I've got a deal and I'm looking for money. If that's the case, we're doing it on, as individual investments and that's fine. But I wouldn't be able to go to you and say, hey, I'll, let me give you 50000 out of my IRA and send me 50000 right back. If the IRS looked at that, they would just say, uh, you just did that for the purpose of getting money out of your IRA to yourself. It smells like a sham. It's probably a sham. <laughs> yeah. But good so, question. We get that question all the time. So in your opinion, with all the options that are available in the self-directed IRA, what is the ideal investment? Ooh, without getting myself in trouble, because as an executive of a self-directed IRA company, I'm not supposed to endorse or promote investments. But I will tell you that the ones that I think, again, this is my own personal opinion, the people that have the less headaches in life with their investments are probably the lenders. And the reason being is because when you own a note on a property, you're not doing the legwork on the investment. You're not picking contractors. You're not finding renters. You're just the bank at that point, and you get mailbox money. And you might not get the returns that the investor might get, but you sure get a good sleep at night without worrying about all the nuts and bolts that might happen with you know, some rehab gone wrong. So are there things that can go wrong with lending? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different things that could go wrong as the lender, but one of the things that we do in our education is to try to prepare people for what might happen. You know, understanding your foreclosure laws in your state in the event your borrower doesn't pay your IRA back, things like that. You know, how you might want to structure your note so that you ensure that you have proper collateral on that investment. All of that can be used in, in doing due diligence. All of that can be used to safeguard yourself, but there's really no investment that's risk-free. But if you were to ask me, what's the investment that you know, most people make decent returns and, and they don't have to stress out, I would say lending. On the flip side though, if you are the more active person, if you want to get out there and invest in things that have a little bit potentially higher return and you're not worried about doing a little extra work, then real estate's great. And I would even say, Multifamily real estate is great. We see a lot of our clients that might pool IRAs together and invest in some syndication that owns an apartment building or a commercial property. 
I mean, more doors, more money in, in some cases. What you got to be careful is, though, is that you have to, when your IRA is invested in those, it still has to be passive. It can't be the apartment building that you're buying as a person. Uh, but we have a lot of uh, lead sponsors that buy these big you know, apartment buildings and multifamily units across the country. And they've learned that IRAs are a great source of private capital that they can not only use retirement money that might be sitting there available, but they're also making their investors potentially better returns than what they were making in the stock market. And I think you know, you're seeing that kind of right now with investors that are invested into these syndications. A lot of them are still getting their payments from the lead sponsors. So their accounts are still growing while on the flip side, and I'm not knocking the stock market, but everybody knows what's going on in the stock market as to, you know, how it can turn in an instant on you. But when you hold tangible assets like real estate, whether it's passive or active, I think that there's a lot of benefit there if you really look into it. You know, absolutely. And I think we'd have, and, and you know, again, this isn't financial or, or investment advice, but I think that what we've seen, we've seen a lot of our clients invest in the same type of assets, uh, you know, the lending, uh, doing hard money or private money lending or doing the syndication investments is typically what you'll see. But, you know, that, that kind of leads into a good question we have here. And that is um, with a Fidelity or Charles Schwab, you could put in $600 or whatever amount into your IRA and you could start playing relatively easily. You could purchase index funds and stuff on the public markets. How much would you say your typical self-directed IRA owner, self-directed retirement account starts with in order to fund their account and make a successful investment? Great question. Uh, and I was actually looking at, the, at these numbers the other day, just kind of trying to look for some trends as to what type of clients are opening accounts. And um, the trend has actually gone in the positive with our average self-directed IRA client. Previously, a couple of years back, I would say the average is about 55,000 is what a normal person would start with. Um, and you could do a considerable amount with $55,000, even if you're just doing you know, small loans or using it as a down payment to buy some real estate in your IRA. Um, and it's increased slightly. It's about 80,000 now is the average account holder. Now, again, that's average. We get some guys or gals that move in a lot more than that, depending on what they're doing. Or we have people that might even just move in 10 or $20,000, but have found an investment that they can use, you know, a small amount of money to do. There's a lot of creative things out there that you can even use a small amount, you know, real estate options is one. I don't want to say wholesaling, but there are people that have wholesaled contracts in an IRA. That's a different thing I don't want to get into. But there's a lot of different strategies that you can take small amounts of money. But I would say the average client overall, 20,000 of them, it's about seventy dollars to $80,000 in, in their account. And kind of to follow up on that, uh, buying real estate within a self-directed IRA is a little bit more complex than it is personally. Talk to us about how banks lend to IRAs and how that affects how much capital you need to bring to the table. Yeah, so banks that loan to IRAs are going to be, they're, first of all, they're not going to be your Chase, Wells Fargo, or Capital One banks. They're going to be banks that have found this niche to do asset-based loans. And that's really what a loan is going to be to the IRA because your IRA, even though it's an entity, it's not a person. It doesn't have a FICO score. It doesn't have income you know, from W-2s. So it, it doesn't qualify. The banks that do it don't qualify on income or credit. They qualify it on just the third category, which is equity. So the banks that will loan to IRAs, typically their safety net is going to be a large down payment. Now, large being 30 to 35% in most cases. Some will do it for less, some will do it for more, but the, your typical not IRA lender is going to want 30 to 35% down. And the loan is called non-recourse. And non-recourse just means 
that the loan is not recourse to you as the individual or to your other IRA assets. The only recourse the lender or the bank has is to the asset itself. So if the IRA fails to make its payments to the bank, the bank can only take the house or the land. That's the only recourse it has, which is a good thing for you and the rest of your IRA assets. And I would say if you're looking at it generally, most of the larger institutions that do IRA loans, a lot of them, their cup of tea is income producing property. So they like to lend on rental property, commercial property, or multifamily because it's a counterbalance, you know, less risk on those types of assets than if you were to just put 30% down and have your IRA own land. Because if you're owning land and just holding it, there's no real residual income that comes in from that. But there are banks that will do it. And I would say one of the great places to start if you want to, if you've got a good relationship with your community bank, community banks are great for doing some of these non-recourse IRA loans uh, because they're a little bit more flexible to work outside of the box than, than your traditional big banks. Makes sense. And you know, I got to ask, you know, you kind of just circling back to before when you had said that there's very few restrictions. And when there are very few restrictions on these types of investments, I would imagine you might have seen some pretty out of the ordinary things at some point in time. And my question is, what is the most craziest thing, most uh, out of the ordinary investment you've ever seen made out of one of these self-directed accounts? Well, um, I don't know if this will get me in trouble on here, but they're, they're, and, and we're in Texas, mind you. So uh, we have a client that buys and sells horse sperm. Uh, I don't know if you need to edit that one out of the presentation, but that is a real investment. And apparently people can make money on that. I don't know how to make money on that. So I'm not touching that investment literally or figuratively, but that's one investment. We have a client that has um, bought soy sauce bottles. The only reason I know he bought soy sauce bottles is that the bottles got shipped to our office by accident. But apparently his investment was with a company that was buying these bottles and they were filling them up and selling them, you know, wholesaling them or something. But his IRA owned a piece of this investment and we just mistakenly got the shipment of empty soy sauce bottles. So, you know, it, it can get, we have a client that owns an ice cream shop. I know how to eat ice cream, but I don't really know how to invest in ice cream. But again, we've seen, we see some weird stuff. We actually have a client that actually owns a thoroughbred as well in his IRA interesting one because, and I don't, the CPAs will kind of laugh at this. He's over 70 and a half. So he had to start taking RMDs. So the conversation was, how do you start taking RMDs off of your thoroughbred? Do you know, do you take a leg at a time or do you, so we, we deal with this stuff all the time, but again, going to your thing, I mean, you can own it. If it can be held in the name of something, your IRA can own it outside of life insurance contracts and collectibles. You know, some of those uh, those investments you just named were, were pretty off the walls, but I mean, I guess you always have those kind of unique situations when there are such little restrictions on an investment vehicle like this. Um, so let's just say I am getting up there in age and I have an IRA and and I have a real estate investment or maybe a thoroughbred in there. What happens to the IRA when I pass away? Well, the IRA then turns into an inherited IRA. And the inherited IRA would go to whoever is listed as your beneficiary. So most people might list their spouse as their primary beneficiary, uh, and they might have their children as contingents. Any IRA you open, you have to name at least one beneficiary. And some people obviously name multiple. So when you pass away, that IRA and the assets within it then transfer over into inherited IRAs for each of the beneficiaries. Um, some people might leave it to a trust and have the trust kind of distinguish who gets what, when. So that's fine as well. But most of the IRAs I think we have are set up 
to have beneficiaries to individuals. And here's the cool thing with beneficial IRAs. I know the sad part is someone has to die for you to have an inherited IRA, but an inherited IRA can still be invested by the person that inherits it, and they can still live tax-free off of the profits within that account. So one of the best things on earth that you can give somebody is an inherited Roth IRA when you pass away. Because if you think about this, if you can accumulate rental property owned within your own Roth IRA, and you've eclipsed the age of 59 and a half, and you've had the Roth IRA open for five years, your Roth IRA becomes a completely tax-free vehicle. You can live off the rents that are generated from those property for the rest of your life and never have to pay a dime in taxes. Then when you pass away, those assets don't go away. They are just held within the inherited IRA that's passed down to say, let's make an example, let's say I pass it to my kids. Well, the properties are still owned by an inherited Roth IRA and they might still be generating rents that my kids can live tax-free off of those distributions or even buy and sell the investments within that inherited Roth IRA. And again, it's never going to be taxed. So it's, that's why I really like the Roth IRA because if you really play your cards right and you invest in the right things with multiple income streams, those are income streams that will never be taxed for not only your lifetime, but the lifetime of your beneficiaries as well. So I inherit an IRA, Roth or traditional, and um, I don't want to have multiple accounts open. So I just want to combine it into my current accounts. Is that allowable? Yeah. Yo, you can condense accounts. If they're taxed the same way, then it's really easy. So we have clients that might move in you know, three or four traditional IRAs, but they move it into one traditional IRA here at Quest. Some people don't realize this, but a SEP IRA is also just by definition a traditional IRA. So um, even though you can have a traditional and a SEP, a lot of times if you're still contributing to the SEP, I just tell people, well, just make your traditional and your SEP contribution into a SEP. That way you don't have to pay fees on two accounts. So yes, you can consolidate accounts. That's good for reducing fees. I would say if you get to a point to where you have a lot of assets, though, there's a lot of advantages to having assets in multiple accounts for a little bit of uh, spread out the risk type scenarios. Um, so we do have clients that open several IRAs if they're going to hold a lot of assets. They don't want a lot of assets in one IRA. And just to confirm, because pretty sure I've read this and I may have misinterpreted it, but my, my understanding was that if you have an inherited IRA, let's just say my grandmother passed away, gives me an IRA, traditional mm -hmm. IRA, and I have a traditional IRA in my name. I can't combine those two IRAs. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. I, I must've missed that part of the question. Yes. An inherited IRA has to say separate because by definition, it's not your IRA. It's, it's someone else's that you inherited. So sorry if I, I misheard that question. I thought it was just general, but you can do this though. So let's say that someone passes away. I have an inherited IRA and I still have my IRA. I can partner those two accounts together to buy the same investment. They can't be put in the same bucket, but I can go out and buy a rental property. And let's say that I'm using a bank loan as well. I can just put the down payment and let's say split it between my inherited IRA and my Roth IRA. Um, and they're both on title. Uh, that way I'm, I'm investing both buckets. They're not commingled. And then the profit will go back pro rata based on the percentages that each account invested. So you could still invest them together without putting them into the same account. Got it. Got it. No, thank you for clarifying on that because I know that that is an, uh, a frequently asked question and there could just be some confusion around, around that. Um, before we talked about investing in syndicates, we talked about UDFI before. One of the most popular investments is the syndicates, at least from what we've seen from our experience. And many syndicates do use debt. They do generate UDFI. 
how do you talk to your clients about justifying paying that tax when you know IRAs are supposed to be tax free? Yeah, it's a great question. We get this. We get this all the time. First, I would say, as a general rule of thumb, tax is not always a bad thing. It depends on you got to just use it as a calculation into your profits. So, for example, you know, I, t- I tell a lot of the clients this is um, if you're going to incur a tax, it's just a reduction off of your profit. But are you making more profit on the investment still than had you invested in Coca-Cola stock? So I think people should not be scared of the tax, but just aware of the tax. And then depending on how the investment's structured, you might not even have to worry about even thinking about the tax for several years. So for example, I see a lot of lead sponsors that might raise money from IRAs. And according to the operating agreement or subscription agreement, that payments or profit won't be realized for three to five years. Well, if there's no profit, there's no tax. And I know how the investments work. They might go out and they might incur some debt and then they use the debt to you know, rehab the property and then they acquire more debt to pay off the old debt. And then when it comes to, say, selling the property, well, that's when you want to you know, get your CPA involved to make sure that he's calculating the UDFI based on, you know, so you can figure out what capital gains would have to be realized by the IRA. But here's the cool thing with when you talk about capital gains and UDFI. Capital gains, when you're thinking about your IRA, it's only going to be paid based on the, the debt leverage percentage at the time of sale and the 12 months prior to that. So I'll give you an example on just a rental property because it's easier to break it down for people who are listening on that. Let's say that I used my IRA to make a down payment and I borrowed money from uh, North American Savings Bank, which is a non-recourse lender, and I'm 70% debt leveraged at the time I buy the property. Well, as I hold the property, if I, if I use it long-term, I'm using the rents to pay down the mortgage. And over time, I might even get some appreciation. So the house appreciating and the loan getting paid down is reducing my debt leverage percentage year after year. And in a perfect world, if I get all the way down to where the loan is paid off and I have no debt 12 months after that, and then I sell, well, then my capital gains is zero because they're only going to go back 12 months from the time that I sold the property. So it really kind of depends when you're talking about multifamily now and a lead sponsor, it depends on how are they using the debt, how much debt is there, and what's their exit strategy that you can really kind of pinpoint as to how that's going to affect your IRA when it comes to paying taxes. But at the end of the day, I think just find a good CPA that can help you crunch the numbers beforehand and then just look at it on a cash on cash return and base your decision off of that, not how much tax you had to pay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in my experience, almost every time I've ever had to calculate the UDFI or UBIT tax, it's always came in like only 1% to 2% off the return for the most part. And it's not like a make or break. And it, I guess it all depends on your investment goals and your asset allocation and all of that. But ultimately, like I said, I think it's it's a minor consideration, but more or less just something to be aware of. You know, like yeah, you I, I would agree with you 100. I mean, again, I'm just talking in general. Most of the tax I've had, I've seen clients have to make by the time that they calculated the UDFI tax, it was a lot less than what they thought it would be. I've actually got a pretty good case study. Um, if anyone wants to go to our website and look at our, we have got a debt leverage presentation that we kind of uh, use some real life examples. And I've got a client who's a doctor in Houston who bought a piece of land. He got a non-recourse loan from his community bank. So he's gonna, he knew he was going to incur some UDFI. But 
when you looked at the cash on cash return, because he was only had only had to put a down payment from his IRA, the bank loaned him the majority of the funds, and he held the property for longer than a, a year and a day. So even the tax that he had to pay was considered long-term capital gains, not short-term capital gains. And after you throw all the other things, expenses or whatever other things that you threw on there, his tax was only about $12,000, but his profit was $124,000. So when you looked at his down payment and his return, the cash on cash return that he made was 80%. And if he looked, if he did it without the debt and without the tax, he would have had to come in with all the money to, to buy the land with no debt. He would have paid no tax, but the cash on cash return would have been 40%. So the tax is not something that you should ever scare you away. You should look at this as a cash on cash return type scenario and just realize that the, the tax is just the cost of doing business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or Quest IRA or go and pick up that, uh, that case study that you have on, on the UDFI and debt financed investments, how could they do so? Just go to our website. It's www.questtrust.com. There's a ton of education on there. Or if you're on Facebook, we do a lot of live streams on Facebook to our followers. So follow us on Facebook. That's probably the best ways to reach out to us without having to pick up the phone and call. But if you want some more in-depth kind of analysis of what you've got as far as IRAs go and talk to an IRA specialist, you can just call us at one 855 fun IRAs because we try to make retirement fun. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but uh, we really have fun with this type of stuff. And based on the assets I've told you that we held, I mean, it's kind of hard not to have fun with this stuff. So uh, yeah, so just reach out to us website or give us a call. All right. So thank you so much, Nate, for coming on the show today. Looking forward to put this out. You dropped a ton of knowledge, cleared up some uh, frequently asked questions that we had from our clients. Uh, I was glad to, that that I was taken care of. And uh, like I said, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.